Hello, I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Jonathan, Dif- what you've been up different to? Different tone of voice, Yannick, because in the last few <laughs> days, you have been Yannick Levy of London because you were here. Indeed, indeed. And it, and it, in such an impolite, spontaneous Israeli way, I basically called you up and said, hey, free for coffee? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Coffee, lunch, dinner. We had to push you out of the house. Um, it was <laughs> wonderful. The first time since we have been doing this because of COVID and everything else that we've been able to be face to face. Normally, it's basically been the same experience as anybody listening. It is connecting to each other via technology and just little earphones. But instead, there we were in person, real human beings. Yes, you are a real human being. That was surprising. Um, <laughs> Want to give any, any uh, you know, uh, grades for my gift-giving abilities? Yes, um, I am holding in my hand, here it is, the bespoke unholy mug which mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. had commissioned and made. It's the Unholy logo, which will be familiar to you as the sort of symbol for the podcast on your device. But it's great to be able to drink essentially out of your head, which is what <laughs> I can do. Is, which is what you usually do every week anyway. <laughs> that's right, um, I drink in. Um, but no, so we've got the mug there with both of us there. I'm going to hold it up just in case we get a little image, a screen grab. But it's wonderful. And you brought that. And you also brought a T-shirt, which was terrific with the slogan on the front, save it for the podcast, which is what (laughs) our executive producer, Lior, says to us every time we dare speak outside school hours, as it were. That's what he says, save it for the podcast. So I have that on a T-shirt. I think you had a slightly flattering sense of my size (laughs) because it's a T-shirt that would look brilliant on my 17-year-old son, slightly unforgiving. On me at my stage of life, but still a wonderful thought, Yonid. And you've you've so, set the bar high for when I come to Tel Aviv. Exactly, I was going to say you. that not you know not everything in life is is a competition, but this is. <laughs> so when you do eventually uh, come here, uh, I set the bar high for you. Yeah, I'm going to have to yes. bring tacky London souvenirs, little toy red buses. <laughs> I think your kids might like toy red buses. I think I'm going to do that. And you think they don't go, They don't have like 60 of them by no, now. That's do, nice. Because uh, such well-traveled yes, parents who so you bring back gifts I, from all the capitals of the and world. And when you, cool. uh, that's just from this visit, the 60 buses. <laughs> uh, when you do eventually come, we'll also, we were so excited this time that we have only one picture that we will never release to the world because it had, I was in a bad hair day. But uh, we will document every move you make in the Holy Land. When you do eventually come here. Yes. And in fact, we will it's have your move, we, Friedland. We, we are going to get a bit of a steer on when I and many millions of others are going to be able to come to Israel because we are talking COVID. One of the things I've been saying for ages is that uh, Israel uh, for in during the COVID period acquired this very unique uh, in Israel's experience uh, status of being discussed and talked about around the world, not because of the conflict or politics, but because it has been setting such a lead on COVID. And so finally, I think we are going to get to hear from someone who really knows about how Israel is handling it all. How Israel is handling and looking at you know, the rest of the world and what's happening in the UK here now and what's happening at the US. So we, you know, our special guest today um, is Dr. Sharon Reed Price. She is uh, Israel's Director of uh, Public Health Services. In this country, I have to tell you, Jonathan, probably the face most associated with uh, uh, battling uh, COVID, Israel's Dr. Fauci, if you like. Uh, so we'll say hello to her now. Dr. Sharon Reed Price, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. By the way, how frequently do you talk to Dr. Fauci? 
Just um, since the booster um, session, we've talked several times. Because I have, I have this image of all of you, all the people who are in this job all over the world having kind of 7 a.m. calls with each other, comparing notes, trading data. That's my image of it. Is that, is that not how it is? It, it is. I have to say that there are several sessions like that. Uh, we have sessions with the CDC and with the UK uh, every other week. Uh, we have sessions by professionals from the Ministry of Health every week with Europe and with uh, USA. So there are a lot of uh, points of, consulta- of uh, when we consult each other, definitely. Because the, because my, my interest in all this is that unusually, and Yoni and I have talked about this on the podcast quite a bit, this is one of these, this has been one of these unusual cases where the world has been watching Israel. It's interesting hearing what countries you're watching, but the world has been watching Israel really from the start because Israel was out of the block so quickly in terms of vaccination. And there's been this idea that, you know, where Israel goes, the rest of the world will follow a few months later, perhaps. If, if that premise is broadly, you know, right, what, in a nutshell, do you think at the moment, what are the signals from Israel telling us? Um, I think the main uh, encouraging thing is that the booster is working. So the first signal was that there was waning and we need a booster. Uh, but I think the uh, optimistic part now is that the booster is, is working. And even though everything is open, the economy is open, the schools are open, uh, we see the pandemic, the, the disease surge coming down. And that's um, due to the effect of the booster. So um, I think the main thing for other countries, obviously every country has to do their own calculation where they are in the pandemic, how many people are vaccinated, when they were vaccinated, what type of vaccination they were given. Um, But at some point when the disease uh, surge goes up, we see this in Eastern Europe right now. Uh, We see an increase in the UK now. Um, there is a decision to, to make to be made about the booster, and I, I and I hope that the results from Israel can help other countries uh, in their decision. Because Israel is really unique. First of all, being at the vanguard and the first country to decide to give uh, the booster and vaccinating large parts of the population, not only uh, the at-risk uh, population, also deciding that anyone who has passed essentially six months since their second vaccine will not receive. Uh, a green pass. Um, all of these things, you believe that the rest of the world would, would follow suit on this eventually? Again, every, every country had, has to decide uh, depending on their um, situation. This was the right decision for Israel, and I can explain why. We saw an increase uh, in the number of cases to more than 10,000 a day for several days. We were in a reproduction number of 1.4, which means that every 10 days we're doubling the numbers. We started to see increase in severe and critically ill patients and increase in uh, the death rates, the mortality from, from it. And what we saw is in this surge of disease, we had 50 to 55, sometimes 60% vaccinated individuals because the vaccine was not uh, really giving them the same uh, protection as, uh, as it used to, to give. Um, so in that kind of uh, decision, when, when we are with, with these data, um, we understand that it's not helpful to just vaccinate the 60 and above. We saw a lot of 40 to 60 people doubly vaccinated who have passed uh, six, seven, eight months since their second vaccines coming into severe and critically ill 
conditions in the hospital, even dying. Um, so when you have such a, a surge of, of disease, uh, there's really no other choice. If there are other countries where the disease is more uh, manageable, maybe more um, different situation where you have more restrictions, uh, there are countries where they do curfews here and there, not everything is open, maybe you can have other decisions. Um, but, but in Israel, when everything is open and we see infections spread uh, so immensely, then this is the, the right choice. See, what you're saying there really helps explain for people who are not scientists, people like me, how to understand these figures around the world. Because right now, a lot of people in Britain, for example, are getting very worried that the British figure is way ahead of the rest of Europe, for example. The case numbers are just really high on the graph. And meanwhile, you look across the Atlantic, the United States, their figures, they're going in the right kind of direction. They look pretty low. What this, What you're saying about waning... I wonder if that is the explanation that because Britain wasn't as fast as Israel, but because Britain was quite quick, uh, therefore the effect is sort of wearing off six months later. And because America was quite slow, their people are still covered because they haven't had the waning effect yet. Is that broadly the pattern? So part of it is the waning, part of it is uh, isolation policy and other restriction policy in the country. So waning is not the whole picture, but it's a big part of it. So is that our future? Are, are we looking into just a, a, a kind of booster shot every six months or we, or we don't have enough data about the, the current booster to know that? Yeah, we, I was asked the same question by the FDA when we presented and, and I said there and I'm saying here, I don't have the crystal ball, unfortunately. We don't know the answer for that. There are some viruses uh, like hepatitis where you give a, uh, a, the first uh, dose, then after a month, a second dose, and then after six months, a booster dose and you're done for for years Ever. you're covered um, with with corona we don't know yet uh, it depends on the whole pandemic situation if most of the world will be uh, vaccinated and there will start to be a drop uh, in in the pandemic and it will stop being pandemic maybe we won't need anything at all on the other hand this virus currently is not stable uh, from the delta variant we have several Subvariant right now. One of them is uh, a bit concerning, and so if you have such a shift in the virus, that's uh, and uh, that's a reason to think maybe we will need a booster uh, sooner rather than later. But I don't know if it's six months or a month or a year or you know several years. We don't know it yet. It's interesting you saying about we don't have a crystal ball because I realise partly the interest people have about Israel is they think that's the closest we get to a crystal ball, right? We look at Israel and we'll see what our imminent future is going to be. I, I, I wondered about um, what the Israel evidence or experience tells us about non-vaccine related measures. And I'm thinking particularly of masking because indoor mask wearing was a thing in Britain uh, and now suddenly is really not and people are not wearing them partly because they've got so much faith in the vaccine. Again, lessons from Israel. What is the Israeli evidence telling us about whether or not people should still be wearing masks indoors? So it's, it's, it's a good question and a difficult one to answer. Uh, I will take you back to the beginning of the pandemic when we had nothing at all. We didn't have restrictions. We didn't have, um, we didn't have a green pass. We didn't have anything at all. And then we had this, uh, this pandemic surge and people just started putting masks. With the um, utilization of masks, um, the reproduction number dropped. 
So that was the only time when we used one measure and we can show the effect of that measure. And in addition to that, the compliance to that measure at that point in time was high because the Ministry of Health said you need to put masks and people were afraid of the, of the, of the virus and they put masks in. So you can actually see the drop in the rec- reproduction number. So you know surprisingly, masks- Israelis did what they were told. And so at that point in time, <laughs> so, um, so we have that period of time when we can say we can actually analyze what was the impact of masks and masks alone. After that period of time, everything else that you will ask me, I would not have a good question because every time we did a step, usually it was more than one step. So wrong policy there in the UK, Jonathan, if you yeah, I mean, <laughs> so, tell, so me, tell me, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> You discussed uh, briefly, you mentioned the, the sub-variant of, of Delta. I wanted to hear how concerned you are, and, and also considering the fact that Israel is supposed to be opening its borders for tourists in November, uh, can you talk about, you know, are you worried that certain mutations might now enter when that is, when that is the case? Yeah, I think that's the, that's, we have two challenges in this pandemic. One is the schools and education and the fact you have this huge population non-vaccinated and you want to keep the routine good and healthy and it's important. And the other um, kind of um, zone is, is, the, is the borders and how can we control the borders. And you want to balance, um, the easiest thing would be, let's just close the borders, no one coming in, no one going out, now we'll know we're safe. You can't really live with COVID like that. You have to find the right balance. And I think the, the increase uh, in cases in the beginning of the fourth wave uh, in Israel uh, was really interesting. We were trying to find this balance Uh, we let people um, at least out, Israelis obviously in. Uh, tourism was not uh, allowed to, to a, a really maximal effect. Um, but Israeli came, Israelis came, uh, went out and in, and we started seeing people coming, confirmed cases. At the beginning, it was like 10 a day, and then 30 a day, and then 50 a day, and then we got to 200 a day of confirmed cases. We want to people going out and in. Uh, we are afraid or concerned. Afraid is not a good word. We're concerned about viruses and variants. Uh, we have several variants that we're now following. There is one in, in, in the UK that is uh, to some extent concerning um, because it, it is circulating in a country that is vaccinated in a Delta, in a delta wave. So maybe, it's, maybe it beats Delta. Maybe it's stronger than Delta. Um, so... It is concerning, but we have to find some sort of a balance. What we are trying uh, in, in Israel is to make sure that we have safeguards, like everyone entering the country has to have 72 hours prior to boarding PCR. They have to do PCR testing when they land. Like these are two rules that we, we will try not to break because we're trying to keep infections out. Um, and then for travel to make sure that people coming in are vaccinated. And this is, again, a, a difficult point now because Israeli vaccinated is not the UK vaccinated. People in the UK are considered vaccinated after two shots, even if eight months has passed. In Israel, they are not considered protected anymore. So we're trying to find this balance of allowing people to, go, to come into Israel, but making sure that the risk for disease is, uh, of ha- them entering with disease is lower. Yeah, no, I'm not going to be booking any 
flight just yet listening to what you just say there <laughs> i can imagine plague island uh, britain may well be not on, will be on the red list but i, I i'm just interested in this idea of keeping out people who are not protected when israel has so many people within who are not protected forget triply jab you've got people i think 700,000 israelis who aren't protected at all i'm just interested again for what this what you've learned from that in terms of for, as a lesson for the rest of the world 700,000 people are not protected at all. What does that do to the immunity, the protection of the herd overall, if you have, what, that's around 10% or so, you know, give or take, of the population who have not had the had their shots? So herd immunity is, uh, is an important term. And most of the times, you know it in retrospect. So I can say now that for the alpha variant, we had 65% of the population covered, immunized, protected, either immunized or recovered individuals. And that was enough for herd immunity. So 35% were not protected, mostly kids. Um, and, and we went out of this wave. Then came the Delta and the Delta is 50% more infectious. And so the level you need for protection from for herd immunity, uh, the percent of population that needs to be protected is now higher. We don't know exactly what it is, uh, but it is higher. But when, when we are seeing now that the disease surge is coming down, we can say that probably um, those 700,000 uh, who are not protected are not probably going to stop us from achieving herd immunity. But we want to make sure that they are protected. So if I'm looking at a national level Yes, it's important that everyone will be uh, immunized, protected. Uh, we want to make sure that even between the waves, we continue to immunize people because we know we're not done with Corona. It, it will come again and again in waves. Um, but I'm actually concerned about those people, um, the well-being and, and the health of those people who are not immunized. I think the people who are on anti-vaccines a really minority of them. It's not 700,000 people who are objecting vaccines. It's populations that for some reason we were not able to go into. We were not able to explain to them the data, the science, the importance. And so they are at risk um, 10 times higher to get infected and to die, even at young ages. Uh, but those who did not even get the first shot um, in my opinion, the mo most part, uh, most of them are not uh, people who are objecting, religiously objecting vaccinations. There is this small minority who are very vocal, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the larger part are people who are either concerned because there are a lot of fake news out there um, about the side effects, the danger um, fake news about the disease. It's not dangerous. It's not, it's not contagious. And so we need to, to fight that with science and with data. And there are some um, populations um, that are hardworking, low socioeconomic. They're just not in the news. They're not in the media. They're not in Twitter. They're not in Facebook. We're not reaching them. And we are trying in different ways to find how to get to them. Uh, people in the south of the country, uh, the Bedouin in, in the south, to get to them with their 
physicians, with their doctors, um, reaching out to them with uh, uh, special cars that comes with the vaccines and explaining to them why it's important. Uh, but it's a challenge. It really is. I don't think on the national level, when we're seeing the numbers go down right now, I don't think that in the national level, those 700,000 are now stopping us from getting to this point of herd immunity. They probably are not, but they are endangering themselves. And that's to me, I'm, I'm concerned about their health as well. I can't just say, you know, you, you chose not to be vaccinated yeah. Tough luck for you. Um, it, it is our job to try to get to them with the data, with the science, with explanation, with the vaccines, and try to uh, to make sure that they're doing the right choice for them. You know, obviously the biggest group that isn't vaccinated yet are the children, 5 to 12. I, I assume we're expecting the FDA's decision on this uh, really any day now. You said last week that Israel giving the green light is not guaranteed you want to to uh, uh, check it for yourself. I, I wondered what your, you know, when you think they will actually begin to to vaccinate children and how uh, confident are you that that parents in Israel would kind of stand in line to get their kids uh, vaccinated from the age of five, from the early age of five? Um, that's, that's a great question. And I will add to your question that I don't know how much um, enthusiasm would be to be for vaccination when the when the disease surge is on its way down, when the wave is com- is coming down, we saw the same thing for the 12 to 15 years old. Uh, we had approval of the 20 to 15 years old at the beginning of June, um, and and people did not run to get vaccinated. Kids did not go uh, to be vaccinated at that early stage. I think what will be important is to explain to parents that once the virus is coming up with a, let's say, a fifth wave, it goes up exponentially. And then in that point in time, our decision to vaccinate kids and um, and give them that protection will take, for the first child being vaccinated, it will take a month until they're protected because you have the first shot after 25 to 21 days, the second shot, then a week. So for the first kid, it will take a month until that kid is protected. And if you have a surge and it goes up very quickly, it's too late uh, because the, the exponential rise, and we saw it in, in the numbers in the fourth wave, 10 times, 15 times cases in 10 days, it was like this. Mm. And so if, if parents really want to make their kids protected, make sure that they are protected. It's better to do it even if you don't have anything right now brewing in Israel. Um, it's, we are in the downhill of the, of the wave um, because we think there probably will be a, a fifth wave. And I would like my kids to be protected when it comes and not then start to vaccinate them and wait for the effect. You, you talked about what it, your view of this as a parent, but just being the person at the helm, steering a country through a crisis like this. Just on a human level, I'm very keen to know what that is like for you. We'd mentioned Dr. Fauci. There's a handful of people around the world who will know what it is like to be in the chair that you're sitting in. And just tell us what that's that's like and, you know, what keeps you up at night and are you just thinking about this the minute you fall asleep and the minute you wake up again? I mean, talk us through it. Wow. That's a... (laughs) That's a difficult question, but I'll try to do my best to answer. I don't, I don't have nights and I don't have nights, not because I'm working too hard. I am working very hard, but there is not a moment of rest 
the, feel, the burden of uh, the responsibility, knowing that every decision that you make, it's not us making the decision, but every decision that we offer for our policymakers to decide has, um, has impact, not just the health from Corona, but also mental health issues that can happen if you're trying to uh, make sure that everyone is staying in a curfew or in a lockdown because you don't want infection to spread. Um, the, the burden on uh, business people who may be losing their business because we need to now restrict, restrict um, all sorts of activities. It's challenging. It's really hard. Um, and I think one of the, the difficult part is um, when you're trying really all your best thinking during the day and at night, what to do better, what decisions we've made that we should have done better for the next time. I think the, the distance between where we're coming from, um, trying really in this difficult unknown zone to make the, the best decisions and how it sometimes is perceived. And I think that makes it even harder. I'm really worried about you not having nights. Are you literally up all night then? What does that mean? It means that I never had problems falling into sleep or waking up. And this more than a year has been sleepless, <laughs> really yeah. sleepless. Like I'm waking up in the middle of the night thinking what we need to do how to do better, what kind of data is still missing, what do we need to compare to other countries, just because we're on this unknown territory. And especially when Israel is so um, forward in, the, in this pandemic, we, we don't even have other countries to look into. Like we need to make our own decisions without data from any, anywhere else. And I remember the first time when we released the data that our vaccine effectiveness dropped to 60%, they, everyone nearly cut our head off. Like yes. in, in the UK, it's 88%. In the USA, it's, uh, you, you don't know, you're missing. Saying, no, 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 we're not missing. Like, trust us, we're looking at this data very closely. Um, so yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's hard, it's challenging, but, but it's important. Well, we can just say thank you very much, not only for this conversation, which was illuminating, but for all of the work uh, that you're doing. And hopefully someday this will be over and you can take a very long vacation. Uh, Well-deserved. Um, and thank you, really, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Bye-bye. I've got to say, I mean, wow, about that, her and that interview. I found her so compelling especially at the end, talking about this very particular burden of being the Dr. Fauci. There's dozens of these Dr. Fauci's around the world, but the one who has no other model to look at because Israel went first and how that's kind of lonely. And I just um, listen to her and just think, I can't be the only one who thinks this. Tell me, there must be Israelis who think, if she can run the pandemic, the handling of the pandemic this well, let her run the country. <laughs> I mean, what an amazing person. Is, are people talking about a political career for her? Not yet. There have been a few skirmishes between her and the prime minister in the way that this is uh, handled. Uh, she's definitely, you know, she's uh, a very compelling speaker. And again, as you said, the, the, her talk about the responsibility and the attempt. Just think of how you're trying to 
realize and, and make decisions, even though you kind of feel like, like you're in the darkness completely. Uh, she did talk about Fifth Wave, which wasn't a fun thing to listen I to. Um, but all in all, that was a, a really, really interesting uh, conversation. And I think that when you realize there are serious people in these positions, maybe there's a little bit of comfort in that. I thought so. Um, so I, I, I have no nights. That is going to stay with me. <laughs> yes. I have no nights. But we have other business to attend to. We do. We do. Um, our mention Chutzpah Awards, Jonathan. Somehow you have allocated the Chutzpah Awards to me. Yeah, I'm going to be Mr. Nice Guy this week. I'll do mensch. You, you this give week, us you're Mr. Nice Guy every week. You always take the mensch awards to yourself, which is, you know, that's fine. Fine. I've yet to... Um, fight against that. Uh, so uh, this will not surprise you. Of course, it's not a story that blew up this week, but I must for this week's uh, uh, episode uh, still nominate uh, Sally Rooney. Um, not surprised, are you, Jonathan? I'm sure. Uh, this story started in our newspaper reporting that Rooney decided to not sell uh, Hebrew publishing rights to her for her new book to Modan Publishing House, which was the uh, publishing house that um, uh, published her first two novels in Hebrew. And then she put out a statement saying... It would be an honor for me to have my latest novel translated into Hebrew, but for the moment, I've chosen not to sell these translations to an Israeli-based publishing house. Can we pause on that for a second? Because what it actually says is, of course, I don't mind translating my books into Hebrew. I just don't want it translated by any publisher in a country where Hebrew is spoken. Or in other words, of course, I want my books to be translated Hebrew. I just don't want any Hebrew speakers to read them. So that, that would give, I think, if it was, if it had been left at just the first go at this, when she initially, it was reported, and I think, you know, maybe lost in translation, ho-ho, um, <laughs> but initially it seemed like she was saying, I don't want this, my book, in the Hebrew language, right? That was how it was first sort of uh, went into circulation, this story. And that shocked everyone, and she would be a slam-dunk nominee for Chutzpah Award then because it was as if I don't want the taint of this Jewish language touching my book mm -hmm. so she then came up with this statement which I thought was very sort of clever really because really? she sort of dealt with well clever not wholly in a positive way it was sort of canny because what she did was she dealt with all the first objections and you notice quite a lot of people who had initially criticized her then backed off because she said no problem with Hebrew I j it just needs to be an Israeli publisher who complies with the BDS uh, standards, boycott, divestment, sanctions. So it seemed Good luck like, finding you know, that, by the way. You know, and and she said, you know, it'd be an honour to be in Hebrew. And I know I've listened to people who said, you can, why? Uh, what about all the other countries and China and Russia? You don't boycott their languages. And she had an answer for that. It was mm -hmm. that people used to say that uh, you know when the South Africa boycott was happening. Uh, you, there were other bad things going on in the world then too, and you can't do everything. But people did the South Africa boycott, even though they didn't boycott 20 other countries. Because mm -hmm. I'm listening, she said, to the call from civil society. Uh -huh. To which my response was, do you, have you guessed, Sally Rooney, why there's no call from Chinese <laughs> civil society for a boycott over the Uyghurs? That's because they're not allowed, right? They wouldn't be allowed, and maybe the same in Russia too. But certainly in China, it's not as if they're just freely mingling and saying, you know what, I think it'll be fine to have normal people in Mandarin. Uh, they're just not able to issue that call. So I right, thought that was a bit weak. Yeah, let's not feign innocence, right? I mean, in the sense that no one's going to take on China because Chinese uh, uh, audience is huge. There's no, there are no brownie points in criticizing China. It's too big and powerful. Slamming Israel makes you look good. You don't 
sacrifice anything and you keep your first row in the echo chamber. Uh, that, that is for sure. Look, you and I had a, you, what you would call a spirited debate back in, I'm sure you remember this, episode 14, when we talked about the Human <laughs> Rights uh, Watch report accusing mm-hmm. Israel of uh, apor- apartheid, right? And, and we said there at the point, uh, you said, actually, that this is a watershed moment. And I, I would add to that, the people who knew, needed an excuse took that as an excuse, not because it's true. I think it's disingenuous to say that about Israel. But, but I think the people who needed the excuse at that moment had the excuse. And Sally Rooney uh, used uh, this excuse. Again, we are living in a time where context is ignored and history is ignored and the part of the Palestinians and the Israelis in this situation we are in is ignored. The ins and the outs are ignored. We're all, it's all slog- sloganeering. It's like uh, students calling cops fascists, right? It's not true but it makes you look cool. So it makes her look cool. Um, but, you know, I, I think that many Israelis uh, were, were really uh, offended by this. And they weren't less offended because you said, oh, of course, if there is a Hebrew publishing company that supports BDS, I'll love for them to trans. Come on, Jonathan. That's just, yeah. it's a little... Um, just on that one point, my guess is that somebody, by the way, will do a Hebrew translation as a little ebook somewhere out of New York or something, so that it can be said, look, she didn't have a problem with uh, the language. Somebody will do that. I'm, I've been waiting for that to happen. Um, I, I think, look, first, you're right about mentioning the Human Rights Watch report, because Sally Rooney did name check that in her statement. And, you, and it did remind me of the conversation you and I had. And at the time, I did say, look, this is going to trigger something. Uh, and it goes with what we also talked about in the summer during the 11 day uh, conflict where, you know, Viva Palestine, etc. Free Palestine becomes the new Black Lives Matter. And so as a matter of it being a kind of fashionable cause, this is more evidence. And the idea that it wouldn't be a one-off. You know, we've seen it now on the streets of London. There are posters appearing in bus shelters sort of simulating the copy, the cover art from her novel saying, normal people boycott Israel. And they're not official posters and the uh, Transport for London Authority that is in charge of the bus stops say they are an act of vandalism because they're unofficial and they'll come down. But here's the thing for me. I'm prepared to give her a bit more credit than you in the sense that you said, I think, you know, she's doing it to be cool and fashionable. I want to say, look, I give her credit that she's doing it out of conscience. She thinks it's a very important issue. She's seen the Human Rights Watch report and thinks, okay, I've got to do something. My problem is those may be her intentions. The trouble with cultural boycotts is their effect and their outcome. And it seems to me the limited outcome they have in the country itself, in Israel, is to deprive people who probably would agree with Sally Rooney in terms of opposing the occupation and being in favour of compromise, the kind of people who'd read Sally Rooney novels, they're now not going to be able to read it. So you hurt the sort of very people you'd want as allies. But the main thing is it plays out outside Israel. And so it ends up on bus shelters and bus stops in London. And the impact is on Jewish communities, usually in diaspora. They're the ones who actually feel this stuff in the end. The example I always give is a case that happened in 2014 after the eruption of violence then and Israel's offensive in Gaza at the time, where a Jewish guy walks into Sainsbury's supermarket in Hoban in London looking for kosher products. The entire kosher section is cleared out and empty. His account is that he asks one of the shop people, shop assistants, where's all the kosher food? And they say, we support free Gaza here. <laughs> uh, Sainsbury's afterwards said, no, that it wasn't the case. We removed all the goods because we were worried about anti-Israel protesters outside the store. 
either way, the boycott issue, one way or another, hits Jews. It's about kosher food. It's about Jewish customers in London. And I think that's my problem with boycotts. It's only a tactic. It's not some holy principle. So I'd say to Sally Rooney, I get Sally Rooney, I get your conscience on Israel and Palestine. Wrong tactic. Yeah, you know, I would just add to that, if you want to criticize Israel, believe me, Israelis criticize their government better than any other nation on the world. If you want to criticize only Israel, I would question your integrity or your motivation. And as you say, I, I think that boycotting people who read books, what at the end are you trying to accomplish? I mean, that is a group. I, I just don't really understand that. Now, to Mensch uh, of better. the Week. Um, always better. Uh, we very often have turned this into Unholy's own little obituaries page. And I know it's not always good to do that. But I think probably the stand-up candidate uh, for Mensch of the Week would be the late, now late, Colin Powell. You know, the word was used in a lot of obituaries for him, interestingly, um, partly because it turns out it's not completely inapposite to use a Yiddish word for him. He knew and had quite good Yiddish. He'd worked uh, for a Jewish-owned store uh, when he was in high school, and he pretended to pepper his conversation with Yiddish terms when the time was right. Yeah, he grew up in the Um, Bronx, so he made friends with a lot of Jewish families. No, the main reason I thought he deserved mensch is because, unexpectedly, of the thing that he regarded as a real blot on his career. And that was that presentation he did at the UN, making the case for war against Iraq and saying Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, which, of course, famously they didn't. Now, I'm not saying that was a good thing. I'm saying his reaction to it, the fact that he expressed public regret later, which he did repeatedly, and said he was wrong, used the word blot on his own career, Uh, I think that is so rare um, that it really deserves uh, recognition. It was a rare thing in public life. Many of the other people involved in the Iraq disaster have not done that. Uh, I think of Tony Blair, for example. And I think for that, he uh, wins my nomination as Mensch of the Week. Yeah, you know, I I don't know why uh, I keep having this line. Maybe I do know why I keep having this line from Hamilton in my head. You have no control. Uh, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. At the end of the day, this is a war hero from the Vietnam. He was the first African-American joint uh, commander of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was the first African-American secretary of state. And the one thing that you will remember, uh, tragically, is that moment in, in November 5th, 2003, when he's holding up the vial in front of the UN Security Council saying, I have solid sources, right? And there's WMD in Iraq. Again, you said he regretted it. And and he's not a victim of the situation, right? He he. Took, took part in this. But but you just it makes you wonder about how someone can be so accomplished, even flirting with the idea of running for president. And at the end of the day, that is the one thing that, that you will remember. I think that the world will remember. And that, that is pretty harsh. It's a pretty harsh way of, of history kind of looking at him. Yeah. Um, I remember in the mid-90s, there was really big talk in the Republican Party of him running for president. And you know what was the decisive factor in his mind against doing it? Was his wife, Alma, said, are you serious? A black man running for president? They will shoot you. They will assassinate you. And obviously, you know, 20 odd or 13 years later, there was a black president. But uh, but I think that too uh, is all part of the rounded picture of Colin Powell, our mensch of the week. Yes. Well, Jonathan, uh, we're back to Zoom from 3D, which is a bit of a downgrade, but this is, uh, is. this is how we will uh, continue from now on until you yeah. get yourself on a plane. Till I get to get ourselves to there. Yeah, although if you're advice. listening to Sharon El that might not happen in the 
near future. I know, the but, fifth uh, let's, wave, let's stay, my word, my word. <laughs> let's stay All optimistic. All right, so we have to say to people, uh, having lifted your spirits with talk of a fifth wave, recommend <laughs> us to your friends, give us nice reviews. Always as the you best have been cocktail doing. time chatter with us. <laughs> Always the best. Um, we've had vials of, of mass destruction and fifth wave of global pandemics. You come to Unholy for all the cheery news. Recommend us to your friends. Uh, and who do we have to thank? Lior Friedman, our eternal executive producer, whom we uh, love and cherish. And of course, Romatic, head of podcasts, and Omer Primat. Uh, and I think Ira uh, Deschel for original music. Yeah, we'll see each other next week. We will. We will.